This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to have a return later on today's show of our pal Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. If you were of a certain age, the Firesign Theater will need no introduction. If you're not of that age, let me explain that they're kind of an offbeat comedy troupe. Phil Proctor is a, uh, a, a serious actor in addition to his uh, comedic uh, antics. And you've, you've seen him on commercials. But uh, this not being TV, of course, I can't show you his face. But we'll have plenty of his voice for you a little bit later in segment two. We also hope to hear from our friend Mark Anderson, uh, who talked about Shakespeare last month, but will return to talk about some of his science writing and about the event in Siberia back in 1908. There's a new theory about what might have happened, and we'll either talk with Mark on, on this week's show or probably on next week's show about it, one way or the other. Hopefully today, though. Let us commence the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 21st of May. It was on May 21st in 1819 that the first bicycles in the U.S. rolled along the streets of New York City. They were called Swift Walkers at that time. Actually, I think they were, they were more like uh, scooters because they didn't have cranks and pedals as far as I know. And by the way, you might have caught, uh, caught our bike correspondent Paul Dorn on Insight earlier this week. Paul will be coming back to the show soon to talk about how you too can uh, be a commuter using a bicycle. Something very eco-friendly, which a lot of us can do and a lot of us should consider. Uh, I myself am considering doing that uh, in a, a new, uh, new, new clinic I'm going to be working in that's pretty close to home. Very, very bicyclable. This date in 1832, the United States Democratic Party held its first national convention in Baltimore. If my memory serves me correctly, this was not the first political convention in U.S. history. They were beaten to the punch by the anti-Mason party or the know-nothing party or something. Someone out there listening to this knows the answer to that. Uh, and why don't you send us an email at info at Radio Parallax. On uh, May 21st in 1881, the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association was formed in New York City. And on that very same day, down in Washington, D.C., humanitarians Clara Barton and Adolphus Solomons founded the American National Red Cross, an organization established to provide humanitarian aid to victims of wars and natural disasters. That, of course, was in, con in congruence with the already existing International Red Cross. And here's an item that didn't actually happen on, on the 21st of May. It was the 20th of May in 1956. I just can't help mentioning this fact. The U.S. detonated a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific Atoll of Bikini. Somehow the name of the atoll got affixed to a new type of swimming suit, which had just come out at that time. And yes, that is why they're called bikinis. But I can't help but mention this because... There is an eclipse coming up in July, and you may have heard me talking about the fact that I'm considering running over to Asia to take a look. But because the weather predictions are so bad in China, I was contemplating trying to see it out in the Pacific. My travel agent said, what about Aini Weetok? And I said, can you get me to Aini Weetok? He said, I'll give it a go. Three days later, the word came back. No, actually, they did a hydrogen bomb test at Aini Weetok, and the island is still considered contaminated. Aww. 
So anyway, guess where I won't be going in July. But here's my favorite. It was on May 21st in 1951, when inspired by the life of American stripper Gypsy Rose Lee, the musical Gypsy opened on New York City's Broadway. This, of course, gives Mr. McMillan a chance to cue up just a great piece of appropriate music. And that, of course, was the immortal The Stripper. And if that little piece of music doesn't just make you chuckle, well, I, I don't know. There's, there's something wrong. Let's do our word of the day, a new feature on the program. Our word today is circumlocution, which is defined as the use of wordy and indirect language, something which politicians excel at. Our quote of the day comes from Cato the Elder, who lived from 234 to 149 B.C. And let's face it, you can listen to other radio programs all day long, and you will not hear anybody else quote from Cato the Elder. Cato Kalin? Maybe. Cato the Elder? No way. But uh, said Cato, After I am dead, I would rather have men ask why Cato has no monument than why he had one. And our bonus quote of the day comes from poet Robert Frost, who said, don't ever take a fence down until you know why it was put up. Our quip of the day comes from the late great author Kurt Vonnegut, who once said, True terror is to wake up one morning and discover that your high school class is running the country. Our joke of the day is as follows. Two well-dressed women were waiting for a, a plane in, in LAX airport. The first was from Orange County. The second was from Alabama. When the conversation turned to children, the woman from Orange County said, When my first child was born, my husband built a mansion for me. The lady from Alabama said, Well, isn't that precious? first woman continued, When my second child was born, my husband bought me a beautiful Mercedes-Benz. Again, the lady from Alabama said, Well, isn't that precious? Which prompted the Orange County woman to continue boasting. When my third child was born, my husband then went out and bought me this exquisite diamond bracelet. Said woman number two, well, isn't that precious? First woman then asked her companion, what did your husband do for you when you had your first child? Lady from Alabama says, well, he sent me to charm school. Charm school, said the first woman. What on earth for? Said the Alabama woman, well, for example, instead of saying, who gives a goddamned, I learned to say, well, isn't that precious? Our stat of the day, well, apparently freelance comedy writers can expect to earn $75 to $100 for every joke they sell the late-night talk show hosts David Letterman or Jay Leno. 
But it turns out that Leno's replacement, Conan O'Brien, refuses to buy freelance jokes. He sticks to material from the better-paid members of the Writers Guild. Actually, we have a second stat for today's program. According to the New York Times, quoting an ER physician in Bakersfield, California, people with garden variety sore throats and fevers are flooding emergency rooms nationwide, convinced that they have the swine flu. Down in Bakersfield, they tested 188 patients who came to the ER one day last week, and none actually had the virus. Said hospital official Jared McNaughton, it's a major drain on resources. All right, now let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Joe the Plumber, who announced that he's leaving the Republican Party because it supports excessive government spending. Apparently, Samuel Joe Wurzelbacher said that he opposes any cuts in defense, Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. And did add somewhat gratuitously that he does keep his kids away from, quote, queers, unquote. Attaboy, Joe. And we're not going to ask that obvious question, how would you know? According to the week, it was a bad week last week for nuance. After a six-year, $12 million scientific study identified the flavors in New Zealand's signature Sauvignon Blanc as a combination of A, passion fruit, B, asparagus, and C, cat's pee. Commented researcher Sue Blackmore If you had a whole lot of cat's pee, it obviously wouldn't be great. But it's amazing what a little can do. You know, we we think that goes without saying. And finally, it was a bad week, definitely a bad week last week, for cutting loose. After two dozen seniors at a California high school prom, and the high school remains unidentified, thought it would be fun to squeeze into an elevator and then found themselves trapped between floors sweaty and claustrophobic for more than an hour. Please, don't try this one. All right, from the Only in America file, we have the following. According to the Associated Press several weeks back, Costa Rica reported the first swine flu death outside North America. I put this in the Only in America file because I think only an American reporter would file a story that has Central America not located in North America. But the fact of the matter is, if you step south of Mexico into Guatemala or Belize, you have not left the North American continent. Central America is, in fact, part of the North American continent. From the Only in America file part two, although I'm not sure this really is only in America. Well, then again, I guess it has to be, but here's the story. Singer Phil Collins, you know Phil Collins, was in Genesis, had quite a, uh, quite a successful solo career, Well, Phil Collins announced a few months back that his new main thing is the Alamo. No, we're not talking rental cars. We're talking about the mission battle scene in San Antonio. Phil Collins admits he has hundreds of cannonballs, documents, and other artifacts from the Alamo. 
He announced this in conjunction with the anniversary of the March 1836 battle. Apparently, the collector and history buff's most prized item is a receipt signed by Alamo Commander William Barrett Travis for 32 head of cattle used to feed the Alamo defenders. In a somewhat chilling quote, Collins said, Basically, now I've stopped being Phil Collins the singer. This has become what I do. It is, in fact, Collins' voice which narrates the introduction of a 13-minute Alamo diorama light and sound show at the History Shop by the Alamo. Reportedly, Phil's interest began in his youth when he saw actor Fess Parker portray Davy Crockett. Davy, Davy Crockett, leading a pioneer. He heard of Houston and Austin and so To the Texas plains he just had to go Their freedom was a fighting another foe And they needed him at the Alamo Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier And final item from our trio of Only in America items today, we have the following. A medical student says he was suspended from New Jersey's University of Medicine and Dentistry for insisting that he's a white African-American. Paolo Sarodio, age 42, was born in Mozambique before moving to the U.S. and described himself in a class assignment on identity as white, African, American, period. Sarodio says students and faculty berated him, saying no white person could call himself an African-American. Reportedly, when he persisted, he was suspended for two years and is now suing the school. This seems like a preposterous story from so many angles. If you emigrate to America from Africa and refer to yourself as an African-American, how can that be wrong? Unless, of course, the whole term African-American needs to be thrown out. If you're an Afrikaner from South Africa and you move to California, are you not an African-American? If Hosni Mubarak resigns the presidency of Egypt and moves to America, can he not call himself an African-American? If, by definition, he cannot because he's not ethnically black, then I'd say it's time we took the term African-American and tossed it out. And I can't resist adding that my girlfriend of a couple years back, who was black, refused to let anyone use the term African-American when referring to her. Anyway, speaking of African-Americans, First Lady Barack Obama spoke at UC Merced's commencement on Saturday. It was a proud moment for UC, and we congratulate the good people down at UC Merced for scoring that coup of getting the First Lady to come and speak. I can't resist quoting from another great African-American and... uh, previous Radio Parallax guest, Willie Brown, who commented in the Chronicles uh, column, Willie's World. This was a few weeks ago. I had a heck of a trip a few days back to Merced, where I learned how the little UC campus there managed to land Michelle Obama as a commencement speaker. The reason for my visit dates to my time as state assembly speaker. When the University of California started making noises about adding a campus, I quickly figured out that it would be a real political plus to put it somewhere in the Central Valley. Willie goes on modestly. I knew that if I ever pulled it off, it would make me bigger than the head of the National Rifle Association with the people down there. He goes on. The question was, where? Bakersfield? Fresno? Modesto? I never saw any of the sites, but I studied all the proposals. I never saw any of the sites, but I studied all the proposals meticulously, and we settled on Merced. I finally visited the campus for the first time Monday, having been invited down there to speak. 
If I had any clue of the location, I probably would have never supported it. It's almost three hours from anywhere. This is not the kind of stuff you expect from a politician, is it? This is, this is not circumlocution. And he went on to say, but when you get there, it is a lovely piece of land, and I think the campus will eventually become one of the premier UC institutions. All right, we like to review uh, things we've said on this program on a regular basis, and I don't know, about a year or two ago, we just slammed Discover Magazine. Apparently it had been bought by penthouse entrepreneur Bob Guccione, who turned it into just a piece of trash for a while, but it looks like it's back. Therefore, we may start using it again on this program. There's a couple of good articles in the June issue. Great article about energy, how we can better manage it in the future. An article about uh, Russia's mission to go to Mars's moon Phobos and bring a chunk of it back to Earth. And a pretty comprehensive article explaining why uh, this allegation that autism is being induced by vaccinations is bogus. But uh, speaking of bogus... Uh, Previous Radio Parallax guest and, and distinguished science author Simon Singh got himself in trouble by using that word over in the UK. Noted The Economist, bogus means counterfeit, spurious, sham, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And that exact meaning took on some pa painful importance, said the magazine, for Simon Singh. Last year, Dr. Singh wrote an article in The Guardian about chiropractic, a type of alternative therapy used to treat back pain and ailments. The article came out during Chiropractic Awareness Week, an event run by the British Chiropractic Association. Dr. Singh pointed out some risks uh, in that article to chiropractic, as he did on this show, by the way, which included the death of a Canadian, Laurie Matheson. Dr. Singh felt confident to say that for, these, for five childhood ailments that the BCA claims it can treat, there was no evidence to support the fact that chiropractic could, in fact, treat them. But as it turns out, his exact words uh, were important. His exact words were, the BCA, quote, happily promotes bogus treatments, unquote. The British Chiropractic Association sued for libel. In a preliminary hearing on May 7th, a high court judge ruled that the natural and ordinary meaning of the phrase, which was the relevant legal test, was that the BCA was being conspicuously dishonest and knowingly promoting quack treatments. The UK has much, uh, much more liberal laws than we do here in the United States as regards libel. And apparently the laws, uh, the rulings that take place in the UK can then go to other jurisdictions like the US. This has promoted states like New York from actually enacting laws that prevent British libel laws from being applied in the Empire State. This puts Simon Singh in a position of where he could settle for about $150,000 U.S., or he could elect to try and defend himself. This is made sticky by the fact that uh, Dr. Singh does not actually believe what he is held to have said. As he puts it, as he did on the show, I think alternative therapists who offer treatments unsupported by reasonable evidence are deluded rather than deliberately dishonest. So there's a lesson for you. The exact words you use are kind of important. We would very much recommend that you listen to the interview we did with Simon Singh about his excellent book, Trick or Treatment, a few months back. It is on our website at radioparallax.com. And a little small item from Science Magazine, reprinted in Scientific American, which I cannot resist, is the following. French researchers studied fingerprints. 
and determined that the fingertip whorls aren't just good for gripping objects and identifying people, they also enable you to feel fine textures and tiny objects. The researchers constructed two mechanical sensors. One had a ridged end tip and the other was a smooth one. When they ran them over various textured surfaces and measured the vibrations picked up by the fingerprint sensors, turned out that the ridges were magnifying the frequency range suited for detection by nerve endings in the skin called Pacinian corpuscles. So there it is. Fingerprints actually help increase the sensitivity of touch. And a guy whose touch we've always liked is our old pal Will Durst, who has a thing or two to say about uh, a subject that's been much in the news of late. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I want to speak on the subject of torture. And no, I'm not talking about your normal, everyday accepted forms of torture, like waiting in line at a Starbucks, or going through life a Golden State Warriors fan, or being forced to watch NBC's primetime lineup against your will. I'm referring to real state-sponsored talker we do something crazy, Jack Bauer on steroids kind of stuff. Recently, in an attempt to defend his administration's torture policy, former Vice President Dick Cheney went on face the nation. And you know what, Dick? The nation doesn't want to see your face. Ironically enough, just listening to you speak was torturous for quite a few of us. He called the enhanced interrogation techniques used at Abu Ghraib regrettable but necessary. And you gotta love that phrase. Enhanced interrogation techniques. Sounds like instructions on how to turn up the fluorescence at a job interview. And those car battery cables attached to that man's nipples, they're nervous system awareness amplifiers. How can anybody defend waterboarding a single prisoner 183 times? Besides, operationally, doesn't the effectiveness start to wear off after about 150 times? Yeah, 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 I know. You're gonna drown me again. Oh, I'm scared. What genius kept saying, I know we got nothing the first 182 times, but I get a hunch here. This next time, we're gold. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 182 times, shame on me. As my daddy always said, 183rd time's the charm. Still haven't figured out why Cheney is so obsessed with selling the merits of his torture policies. Although I have heard that one man's torture is another man's S&M turn-on. So maybe that explains more about the Cheney doctrine than we really need to know. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Thanks, Will. I think that amplifies our comments made uh, several weeks back on the subject of torture, which did promote a letter from Matt, who posed the question, how can you say you've never had experience with torture? Haven't you watched late-night television? And I had to admit, Matt, you've got a point. And I have to add, on occasions I have listened to Dr. Laura Schlesinger, Michael Savage, and Rush Limbaugh, and that, that's getting pretty close to torture. Let's take a break and talk funny. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll come back and speak to uh, Bill Proctor of the Firesign Theater. Theater. 